Um, so one of the things that we did uh, when we said that we were going to regather is as um, just part of our teaching team, we all agreed that we was going to try to condense some of the things that we uh, were preaching through to save some time because we do want to encourage uh, families to come with their little ones. Last week and this week we have little ones here and it's been great. It's been phenomenal. And so like if you're watching online and you're like wondering like, man, is, could I even pull that off? Uh, yes, it, it's possible. Even if you have the most rambunctious uh, kids, uh, we would love for you guys to be here and love for you to have, uh, love to have your family here. And then we can just all be rambunctious together. It would be great. Um, so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to actually try to do that. I'm going to try to um, catch up from where we left off, kind of catch up, give us some context, give us some background of where we are. Uh, and actually, uh, we are in our last um, section of the Old Testament. Uh, we've been going through the entire Word of God. Uh, the plan is to do that in a year. And basically what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to draw a line from the very beginning to the very end, showing us that Jesus has always been part of God's plan and that the Old Testament is so super relative to us because it's preparing us for Jesus' arrival, for the promised Messiah that, that God had promised way back. You remember when we were in Genesis, when we first opened up this thing, um, we got a, a glimpse of the gospel uh, there when, at the fall of man whenever God made that promise. God placed Israel we saw this at the closing uh, of, of, of Moses' life and, and Joshua kind of taking the, the charge to lead God's people in, in the land of Canaan. And so we saw God do that, um, place them there. And he did that. And as he did that, he said, I'm going to put you here. I'm, I'm choosing you as my people. I'm going to put you in this place. And you're going to glorify me in a way that the entire world, all the nations are going to know that I am the Lord. And so that was his plan and his purpose for his people was to do that. Um, and instead, what happened was that they defiled themselves, and they defiled uh, the place that God had, had put them, that he had given them, the land that he had given them. And what Moses said would happen actually happened in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 25. He says this, he said, when you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly by making a carved image in the form of anything and by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger... I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. If you will, you will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods of wood and stone and the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. And so Moses kind of sets this warning in place and he even kind of gives a little bit of a prophecy when he says, God's going to give you this land, he's going to place you in it, and the purpose is so that his name might be made much of among the nations. And, and if you, and not if, but when you get there, uh, you guys are going to blow it uh, because you're broken humans and you're going to get in there and you're going to kind of take your eye off the prize and, and you're going to defile yourselves, you're going to defile the land that God's given you. And what God's going to do is he's going to scatter you out, he's going to drive you and he's going he's to wreck that place and you're going to be reduced to just a few people and you're going to be scattered among the nations. It's kind of what Moses is telling them. Um, as they get ready to take this land. And this is where the people of God have been 
as we jump into our text today, this is where the people of God have been and what they've experienced for the past 70 years. So last week we left off, we looked at the prophet Jonah, uh, and this week we're going to be in the book of Ezra. Ezra and Nehemiah are books that are kind of parallel to one another, um, and so you, you'll, you'll kind of see that. I'll kind of tie those two together for us uh, today. Um, and so that's where they've been. They've been in exile. They've done the very thing that Moses warned them of, and now they've been scattered. Jerusalem is in ruins. It's a pile of rubble, and there's no one there. The people have been, been taken away and have been exiled to uh, Babylonia. Uh, and, and today, we're going we're gonna to get to see the second part of what Moses was saying. So we did, what he said was, here's something that can happen, here's something that will happen, and here's what God's going to do about it. And we see that in the very next verses in Deuteronomy chapter, 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 29. He says, but from there, so you guys are scattered. That's what God's going to do. He's going to scatter you among the nations. He's going to reduce your number to few. And you're going to be in captivity way far away from your homeland. And then he says, but from there, from that place, you will seek the Lord, your God, and you will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. So see, all in a moment, here's the plan. Here's what's going to happen to wreck the plan and here's God's way to redeem the whole thing. God loves you, that he cares for you, that he's merciful. Even in that place where they're remembering this now, that they, they've done all these things that they were warned against. And so the context that we find ourselves of, of, of in the book of Ezra today is this. Ezra, the book of Ezra, and, and also Nehemiah, which is the next book over, um, it, it's about the restoration of God's people. And it's about the, the, the restoration of, of them as they've been in exile for a long time. And it's about the rebuilding of God's altar, God's temple, God's place that he created for his people. So in 587 B.C., that was a couple days ago, the Babylonians completely destroyed, wiped out Jerusalem. Um, and, and, and it was about a 30-month siege that they had taken on the city. Reduced it to rubble, brought it down to the ground, destroyed the temple, took God's people into captivity hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem. So that's the setting, that's the context. And so, like, you think about that moment, you think about where we are in Scripture. Besides the fall of mankind in Genesis, this is probably the lowest point of the Old Testament right here. That Jerusalem, the, the God, God's city where people, God's people dwell has just been reduced to nothing. It's a pile of shame. And all of God's people have been scattered among the nations. They're enslaved, they're in captivity, it's a dark time in the life of God's people where we find ourselves today, in that moment. But then we get to the book of Ezra. And we read uh, in the book of Ezra that, that Cyrus is this king of Persia. He issues a decree, and this allows some of the Jewish people to return home to Jerusalem. And he gives them the liberty to do that. God's people would then walk for four months to get back to their homeland to get back to Jerusalem and when they arrive all that's left is ruin it's 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 nothing left so they are standing in front of this this massive task before them of rebuilding their city a lot of work in order to do this what do you think their move is going to be what would our move be 
if we finally return to our home place after being gone for years and years and years and we get back and it's just a mess, it's just reduced to rubble, what would you do? What would we do? So what do you think that they did first? Like did they start moving stuff and clearing debris and getting plans together for renovation? They start building things. It's not what they did at all. And we'll see this in the text. That for three months, they did nothing but meditate on the truths that they knew about God. That's what they did when they got home. They didn't try to create the devise this plan and go to work and try to start building things. They just meditated on the word of God, who God was and who they were as a result of that. And after three months, then they came together. They stood on top of this rubble, this heap that was Jerusalem, where the temple once stood, and they worshiped there. That's, that was their move. And so read with me what happens. We're going to be in Ezra 7, but I want you to jump back to chapter 3 because uh, this is kind of how the story is unfolding in, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Yozadak, with his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the, of the God of Israel, to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Burnt offerings morning and evening. What's the proper response when you meditate on God for three months? It's not to start implementing things you learned. It's not to go run to your nearest neighbor and Show them how much knowledge you have and how awesome it is that you've been enlightened with some new information. That's not the move. The proper response when you meditate on God's word is worship. That's our natural reaction. If it's anything other than that, it's, it's a sinful place to go. The reaction to God's word, the reaction to meditating on who he is, is worship. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 of, of Ezra, in the midst of all this hostility and opposition from, the, from these nearby adversaries, uh, they, would, they, would, they would jump in and say, hey, uh, we'd like to help rebuild this thing. And J J Jerusalem, the Jews are like, um, man, we really can't let you guys do that. This is something for us to do. This is between us and God, and, and you, you might not understand it, but thanks, but no thanks. Well, that, that, the, the, uh, the Samaritans got offended by that. Um, and so they uh, picked up the phone and they called over back to Babylonia. They talked to King Artaxerxes and said, hey, look, man, um, you might want to get over here and check this out. These people are, like, making progress, and I don't, know, like, I don't know if you want this to be going down this way. And so they was receiving opposition from those people. They were receiving opposition from the king himself. And then, and then things kind of just slow down. They get the temple kind of built, and then things slow down, and the work just stops for about 57 years. Nothing happens. And it's at this point that we're actually introduced to Ezra. Some of you might have remembered way back when, when we went through uh, the book of uh, Nehemiah, it was that point where Nehemiah heard that we, we sent people back there 50-something years ago to rebuild the place, and from what the reports I'm getting, they're still just sitting in utter shame because they haven't been able to accomplish all that they set out to accomplish. And so Nehemiah's heart broke, right? And that's the story. Uh, and, and this is kind of where we are now. 57 years have gone by. And, and it's at this point that we're introduced to Ezra now. At this point, after, after this 57 years have gone by, he, he's a priest. Ezra has, is a priest. He's been raised up to, to lead more of God's people back to their homeland. And we pick up in chapter 7 of Ezra, verse 1. 
Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and we'll go, you know, go down through the genealogies, um, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. So chapter 7 opens up with Ezra's genealogy and his return to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity. Um, the significance of this, and so I know that a lot of times, and just like I, I may have did, I kind of jumped through a couple of other genealogies, and that's strictly to save time. It's not that it's not important. The significance of that genealogy, as well as every other one in Scripture, uh, is, is to, to show you something about the people that God is describing. And in this case, it's to prove that Ezra comes from the line of the priesthood, that he's actually qualified to be a priest. Earlier in the book of Ezra, we, we won't look at it, but it's chapter 2 and verse 62. Some of those who, who couldn't prove their lineage were disqualified from serving as priests. It would, it would exclude them from the priesthood. And so this doesn't necessarily mean that Ezra was superhuman, right? That he's in the line of Aaron, that he is actually qualified to be a priest. That doesn't, that doesn't make him um, something better than anyone else. He is descended from a sinful lineage just like the rest of us. Uh, right? He comes from a broken place. The significance here, and this, the reason why we're seeing this, is because God wants us to see how faithful he is. He, it's for God to show his faithfulness to us. This, is, this, this brought hope to those who were in exile, who are now returning. Like, oh wait, God's part of this. Like, there, he's given us a priest. He's given us a mediator. So now, like, the, it, it brought hope. It shined the light in their dark place that they were in. And, and that that just God raised up leaders in the first exodus, just like he did that, right, whenever God led his people out of Egypt and he had Moses lined up to be a leader for them. Here in this, let's call it the second exodus, he did the same thing, that he had a leader raised, uh, raised up to, to lead them um, out of captivity, out of Babylonia. In verse 6 of chapter 7, it says, This Ezra, this one who is a priest, this one who comes from the line of Aaron, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. So not only was Ezra this direct descendant from Aaron, not only is he a, a priest, but he's also very educated in the law of Moses, as the text tells us. And he was always about seeking the kingdom of God. The Bible describes him as skilled, and Ezra was a man whom God granted much favor. That's what we see in this text. He's an extraordinary individual. He's very skilled. He's in the, he's in the lineage of the priesthood. He, God has shown him much favor. His hand was on him. This, this dude is extraordinary. You have this vast realm of the Persian Empire at, at the height of its greatness and its rule, and God gives Ezra and in with the king, so that whatever he asked for, it was given to him. That's favor. So Ezra's super special, but he was also prepared. Ezra was, was prepared before he ever knew what God was going to do. You look at verse 7 of chapter 7. It says, And there he went up also to Jerusalem, and the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God 
was on him. So that's how we can get our dates down to the exact year is because we have all this information, this history that God has given us. So we're given an account of all of those who are returning to Jerusalem. We have kings and we have singers and gatekeepers and temple servants and, and all kinds of people going back. And what is introduced to us in verse 6 and through 9, 6, 7, 8, and 9, is now going to be elaborated on in verse 10. And this is where I want our focus to be this morning. This is kind of where I landed when we were preparing. Again, we got a lot to cover, but we want to condense it into like, what's the main thing we need to see in Scripture that's going to connect us uh, the way we need to, to be connected? And so verse 10 of chapter 7 says, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Before he ever knew what God was going to do, this is what Ezra was about. He was about setting his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach it. That's what he was about. So to get a, get a glimpse at the, the, the significance of this verse, let's remember who Ezra is. Let's think about this for a minute. He's an Israelite. He's descended from Aaron. He is a priest. He is charged with standing between God and God's people as a mediator, his forefathers, uh, all the way up, his, ministered at the temple. They taught uh, the Bible to God's people, but God's people broke the covenant. The temple and the entire city was destroyed. And let's not forget where they are. That's who Ezra is, but now let's see where Ezra and God's people are, right? He's a priest called by God, set apart, holy, um, and he's not in a holy place. He's not in God's temple where you would normally find the priest. He's in exile. He's in Babylon. He's hundreds of miles away from where the temple used to be. This is the capital of the evil empire. And this is where Ezra finds himself, serving the king of this evil empire. This is the priest of, of, the priest of God. And, and what the people need, what the people of God need at this point is liberation. So Ezra finds himself, this person who's been uh, given the favor of God, had been the qualifications to, to be the priest of God, and he's charged with leading these people, and that's what they need is liberation, liberation from bondage, liberation from captivity, to be gathered up, to be marched back through the wilderness, back to the promised land. They need to be reestablished. They need an army. They need walls. They need a strong leader, a king from the line of David. It's, these are things that they need. They, they need to begin making much of God in their neighborhood and to the nations from the place where God originally designed it to be. That's what they need. And in the middle of all of these circumstances, in the middle of all of this, that the people of God, including Ezra, find themselves. Think about that. Put yourself in that context. This is where they are. We get verse 10. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. If you were a priest in this unclean realm and you're wanting to see God's people liberated from Babylonian captivity, if you're wanting to see them uh, receive freedom and be reestablished as this powerful people group, how would you pursue it? What would be your move? What's your plans? Would you do what Ezra did? Would you, would you set your heart to study the scriptures? Would that be your strategy? Would, would you set your heart to, to do what the Scripture said to do? Would you, 
Would you set your heart to teach all that the Scriptures taught? Does this strike you as the most effective way to liberate people? It doesn't to me. At face value, it doesn't to me. Like I'm thinking about some, some military strategy. I'm thinking about some, we need to create a revolution and we need to overthrow this dude. And we need to kick the gates down. We need to get out of here and get back home. Like I'm thinking that. Ezra's plan is to stay focused on the, on the word of the Lord. To be obedient to it. To do what it actually commands him to do. And to multiply that word by teaching it to other people. To teach it to Israel. So evidently what we get from Scripture then is that Ezra thought that he had the best shot at pulling this off by studying the Word, by doing what it says, by teaching it to others. Like that, that was the best shot he had at this. The best way to pursue the kingdom of God is to set your heart to know, to do, and to teach the Word of God. That's what we learn. And, and isn't that the case for many of us? It, it, that we increasingly find, we find ourselves in this increasingly hostile culture that, that continues to minimize and diminish and try to snuff out what Christianity is even about. And all we want to do is just point people to Jesus, man. Like all we want to do is make God known. We want to know God and to make him known. That's what we're about. We want to see his kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. And we find ourselves in this place where it's quite difficult to do that where it's really, really hard to do that. With every passing day, it becomes harder and harder and harder to see and believe that it can actually happen, that we can actually see God's kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. It's getting harder and harder to see it. Why? Why is it becoming harder for us to see it and to actually believe that? Could, could it be that we're, we're pursuing the reality of God's kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven with our strategies? Is it, is it that, that we're, we're trying to do this with our ideas? Listen, there are all sorts of philosophies of ministry and ideas and strategies offered to us to make more relevant ways to pursue growth in Christ. There's tons of stuff that you can kind of reach for and grab for. There's programs, church programs, church strategies, and they all come from well-intentioned people. Right, it's everybody has this desire to point others to Jesus, right? I get that. But when we planted this church, when we planted Sulphur Community Church, one of the goals, one of the primary goals that we had was to keep discipleship as simple, to keep it as clear-cut and biblically based as possible. That was our goal. Now, it, that seems like it's not a lot of frills. Like, I've grown more and more certain as time has gone on I've grown more and more certain of this approach. In the seven years that we've been planted, every day that goes by, I'm more certain that that's our plan. To keep it clear-cut, to keep it simple, to keep it biblically-based, discipleship, multiplying the gospel. That's what we need to be about. That's what we're supposed to be about. That's the idea behind why we were planted. But pursuing this goal of simplified, Christ-centered, biblically-based discipleship has been extremely difficult. And I can tell you this, on the days that I'm most vulnerable, it seems impossible. When I let the enemy actually talk to me, it's almost as like it can't happen. It's not going to happen. Like that's where I get some days. It's difficult. For example, our missional community groups are the primary means for discipleship at this church. So what you don't see a lot of is a lot of programs, a lot of Bible studies, 
uh, a lot of other little small uh, pockets of things because our focus and our primary focus is discipleship inside of a missional community group. And our current approach to these missional community groups is based on these concepts that we find in Ezra chapter 7. Study the Word. Do what the Word says. Teach others what the Word says. Like, it's that simple. It's that clear cut. Our missional community values are this. And anyone who's in a missional community needs to get to a place where they can know this right off the top of their head, that what we value, number one, first and foremost, is the Word of God. As a missional community group, we value the Word of God. As a missional community group, we value prayer. As a missional community group, we value the demonstration of the gospel, which means we care for one another and we care for others. And as a missional community group, we value the declaration of the gospel. That not only are we going to care for one another, we're going to tell people about Jesus. We're going to find out creative ways to preach the gospel. Those are, those are the things that we value. It's exactly what we see here. It's exactly what Ezra set his heart on, to study the word, to do what the word says, and to teach it to others, to multiply it. And I can't begin to tell you how difficult it's been to get traction on that idea, on the fact that we want to be a people about the God, word of God, we want to be a people of prayer, and we want to be a people of caring for one another and seeing the gospel multiplied to the ends of the earth. That has been the most difficult concept for us as a church to get a hold of. It, it, it's great when you write it down and explain it and give a class on it, but when we actually try to put it into practice, we trip and fall all the way. I've had some conversations, some of the same conversations over and over and over so many times about how hard it is for people to see the benefit of our missional communities. I, Blake, I just don't see the benefit of it. I don't know, man. It's just kind of like, it feels kind of, mm, I don't know. Like, do you hear those words? Do you hear what you're saying, how difficult it is to maintain a regular rhythm of studying Scripture? How difficult it is to maintain a steady rhythm of doing what the Scriptures say to do, to maintain a healthy rhythm of teaching what the Scriptures say. It's just, Blake, it's just difficult, man. I don't get it. It seems kind of fake to me. It's it just really hard, like... Why does it have to be so structured? Why, why can't we just do it a different way, Blake? Why does it have to be like this? Why does it have to be so rigid? And if I can be totally honest with you in my experience, and I want to maybe just provide an answer to those questions. If that's you who has those questions, I just want to provide an answer. That when we are left on our own, we don't gravitate naturally to these basic principles. We don't. Left to our own without some kind of direction, we will always gravitate towards What's going on with sports? What's going on at work? What's going on in the family? Does anybody have any prayer requests? Like that's what it's chalked up to when we're left to ourselves. That's why we want structure. We want biblically based discipleship. So let me plead with you this morning to follow this example that's set for us in Ezra. To follow the scripture line that we get here to set your heart to study the scriptures. Set your heart to study God's word. To set your heart to do what it says. To set your heart to teach what the Bible says. God has revealed himself to us in his word. It's not in our conversation about how the family's doing. It's not in our conversation about things that are going on at work. God reveals himself here. In this place, and that's where we need to be focused, not through methods, not through programs and initiatives and resurgences and none of those things, but in his word. 
None of these are more effective than the power of the living word of God. And if the kingdom of God is going to come to sulfur, if it's going to come to our city, if it's going to come to southwest Louisiana like it is in heaven, we need to see Jesus as he's portrayed in the scriptures. We need to see Jesus as he's, as he's given to us in the word. This means that we need to be studying the scriptures, that we need to be students to see how Jesus does life and how we are to uh, follow him in that way. We need to reflect Jesus as he is portrayed in scriptures. This means that we do what the scriptures say. How do we know what the, the scriptures say? We study it, right? And so now we know what to do. And you'll only begin, let me tell you this, this is maybe a, a, a tip for you to, to think about when you're saying, you know what, I just don't really, like I just, I'll be honest with you, I don't really have a desire. Like I just, it's just not there. Like I just read it and it's, it's kind of cold and I just walk away from it. It really don't, it doesn't kind of invigorate me. You will only begin to, to care about what God's word says when you start putting it into action. You want to you you get a fire for this word. You want to be passionate about what God's word says. Start doing some of the things that you read and you'll see God's word come to life and you'll become more and more hungry for God's word. And to see God's kingdom come to, to earth as it is in heaven, we need to multiply and teach the way of Jesus, teach the scriptures. It's in this place. It's in this place where we see Ezra, where we get this moment where now all of God's people have, have returned to, to Jerusalem. The temple has been rebuilt. Nehemiah comes along. His heart's broken, and he, he leads another whole movement saying, we need the walls. We need the gates put back up. We need the city restored how God wants it to be. And at the end, and, and what we see is this is now the place where God's people are ready for what God's going to do next. And it's kind of setting us up for, for next week in our series of kind of getting us prepared, getting us ready for what's next. We're moving into the New Testament next week. We're going to actually see the promised Messiah come, that God's going to deliver on, on his promise. In the spring and the summer of 2016, um, we walked through the book of Nehemiah, which again parallels the events that are happening in Ezra. And these books are literally inseparable whenever you try to look at these events of liberation um, and in Nehemiah chapter 8 is kind of where we parallel with Ezra chapter 7. The temple was rebuilt under lots of opposition, and that was about all that got done. That was about all that happened. The city as a whole was still in ruin. The gates to the city were burned. The wall uh, that protected the city was still uh, in heaps of rubble. And when Nehemiah learned of this, man, his heart broke. Like his, his heart broke when he learned about what was going on. And so he took action. He said, we need to restore the remainder of the city. We need to rebuild the city. And so the entire book of Nehemiah is capturing those moments. We have, so we have this entire expository study on that. If you want to go look at the, the resource section of our website, you can go look at that. But after all was complete, after everything was done, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1, and all the people gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Bring out the book. They were like, we want to hear God's law. We want to be reminded of who God is. Bring the book out. And so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, half a day of reading God's word. Half a day. Don't give me no trouble the next time we go like 45 minutes. Half a day. Reading the scriptures. 
And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, look at down at verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord and the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is the posture that the people place their hearts as they get ready for what God's going to do next. Get ready for what he's fixing to do. God's fixing to go silent for 400 years. There's going to be about a 400 plus year gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament where there is no prophet. There's no voice of God being given to us. But before God goes silent, he leaves his people with this promise. And this is what I'm going to leave us with as we prepare for next week, whenever we get into the New Testament. It's found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. This is the last book of the Old Testament. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So let's pray together. Uh, Lord, we... Um, we thank you for this word. We thank you, uh, Father, uh, for the promises that you've given us in the word. Uh, while these promises were for a specific time and a specific place, they have also transcended time and place and space, and they are uh, very applicable to us, Father. And so we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the reminder that you are going to accomplish all that is set out for you to do. Everything that you promise, God, will come to pass and so, Father, we wait with hopeful expectation. Just as the hearts of your people were prepared after having read, read the word, having the law spoken over them, your promises spoken over them, let our res response, let our reaction be the same as that. And Father, we would, we would say yes and amen and we would raise our hands and we would fall to the ground on our face and worship, thanking you for these promises, thanking you for... Um, God, just your, your word and, and your provision and the liberation that comes by your hand. Thank you for raising up people who help, see us, see, help us see Jesus more clearly, to worship, worship him more fully. Jesus, we love you. Let that not just be verses from a song, but let that be the posture of our heart. Let that be about who we are. Thank you that you've loved us first to give us an idea of what it even means to love. Father, I thank you for those who are in this room. I thank you for those who are tuned in online. Uh, Father, I pray that uh, those who need to hear a word from you this morning, Father, that wherever they are, if they're in this room, if they're wherever, that they would hear a word from you. Father, if someone needs a touch of healing or a touch of grace or mercy, that God, you would extend your hand to them right now. Father, we love you. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.